You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Today we come to the book of John chapter number 8. And it reads in verse number 1, I'll read a few verses here in your passage, uh, standing, this passage. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning, verse 2, He came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote in the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone. The woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. I want to talk to you this morning something about God's grace. Let's lay our Bibles down and ask God to have His way. Lord, I thank you today for this opportunity to gather together in your house and lift up your name. Thank you for your spirit and mercy that we already feel, but you know every need that we carry in our heart and in our mind. And I pray today that your word would prick us, God, that it would speak to us, that it would edify and strengthen, give us hope this morning in this house. In Jesus' name, have your way. And everyone said amen. 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 God bless you. You may be seated. Amen. This Sunday morning. Thank you for being in the house of God. It's a good day. To be together in God's house. This account we read in the book of John chapter number 8 is only told here in this gospel. We do not read about it anywhere else. Much of John's gospel stands alone. Stands on its own by itself without any other complementary accounts. Primarily because it was the last of the gospels to be written It was written at the end of John's life, way past the giving of the others and the epistles. And so John sets out some things that he identifies, that he has received of the Lord, and God leads him to write these things down. And here in verse chapter number 8, there's the story of the woman taken in the act of adultery and brought to Jesus Christ. It is unique in its telling, and there's so much depth here that we cannot exhaust it all, and so I'll touch on just some of the fine points and really bring out the point that Christ was trying to 
leave us with, send us away with, as John tells the story. In the seventh chapter of John, we see the scribes and the Pharisees come and they they bring accusation and in their own authority, they sought to have Christ arrested, but he escapes them. Not once, but multiple times, if you'd read the gospel account, they attempted to have him arrested, but it was not successful. And so now we come in chapter 8 to a different tactic. It's a new scheme. Every time they try to arrest him, he escapes them. And so this time they devise to simply discredit him. What, what does it matter if he, is, if he is free to walk among the people, if his influence has been severed? They hated him. They hated his message. They hated the things that he represented. They, they defied his authority. They were jealous of his influence and his knowledge. He was more than just a rabbi, but God manifest in the flesh, not destroying the law, but fulfilling the law, and yet he sat with sinners, and he ate with publicans, and he had his dealings with Samaritans, all of the things that offended the royal houses of religiosity of this day were found in Jesus Christ. And so they devised this scheme so that they could discredit him, accuse him, Before everyone, they found this woman caught in the act of adultery. They bring him, bring her rather, to Christ. There is set the dilemma, rudely interjecting in his teaching. They they were not after the real heart of the matter. They did not wait for a private moment to bring up this issue. But they came with stones in hand, standing by. Knowing that if Christ would say, stone her, and he would speak the law that truly was established in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and other places, it was the law to stone one that was caught in adultery. And so they come knowing that if he fulfills the law, he will disenfranchise himself with every sinner, with every publican, with every Samaritan, with every person on the outside that he has been in fellowship with. He would distance himself and disenfranchise himself. And yet, if Christ says she should not be stoned, he would defy the law. And so they had him either way. They knew that they were going to they were going to interject upon his influence with the multitude. Someone was going home that day, so they thought. And they were right. They just didn't realize which ones it would be. Would grace stand helpless in this scenario, in this scene? But oh, Jesus stoops down. And as if he does not hear them, he begins to take his finger and he writes in the soil of the ground. The finger of God is at work before them 
Yet once again, the last time that the finger of God, so to speak, had literally come down and written not only in Belteshazzar's palace, but among the Israelites, it was on that mountain called Mount Sinai. And there was so much symbolism in this moment because that finger was the finger that etched out the law in the first place. Here they were coming using God's own word, trying to trip him up. But what they didn't realize was that they were speaking to the author of the law. And he reaches down and he begins to write with his finger in the soil, in the dirt. They, they go on. They are standing there. They're going on and saying, Master, Lord, here it is. Trying to bring it to him in mockery. The Bible says that he speaks to them and says, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone at her. There, he renders them silent. He renders them, he renders them silent, absolutely stunned, because which one of them now would claim to have no sin? And defy the law that says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Which one of them now would stand? And now Christ was not on trial, but they were on trial to see if they truly acknowledged the law that said that every man is a sinner and has need for atonement. And so they're silenced. Christ, the Bible says, stoops down yet again, a second time. And he begins to write in the soil. He begins to write in the ground. Why? Well, maybe there's more than one reason. But one thing we know is that when Christ first gave the law, when God first gave the law to Moses to be delivered to man, it was not once that he wrote, but it was twice that he wrote. For Moses comes down the mountain and he takes those tablets of stone and he throws them down and they're splintered and scattered and so Moses has to ascend up yet again. And it was the second giving of the law that would be enshrined in that Ark of the Covenant laying beneath the mercy seat. And so now in identifying that he is not just the author of the law, but he is the finisher. He stoops down yet again. And makes a direct claim to the great I am when he again begins to write in the law. He writes in that soil. Oh, what did he write? What, what was it that he wrote? If we only knew what it was that he was writing in that dirt, the, the text does not say. John does not tell us. But if we could look into what was going on. In the context of that day, there is something I have. A good idea of what Christ may have been etching into the very earth that day. In that time, a period around the Herodian period, the time of Christ, the, the, the oral traditions of the law had evolved and been added on to so much. There were so many great interpretations of 300 A.D. They finally pinned them all down. And in the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, there are quite an expanse of volumes of interpretation on the initial Torah, the first five books of our Bible. 
And in that day, they had caused, basically, adultery meant more than what we would think in the actual immoral act of infidelity within a marriage. But whenever a man and a woman were betrothed, they were already considered married. Even though the ceremony had not happened, even though they were not living together, and there was no uh, consummation in the marriage, when a betrothal was established, they were already married. They were already identified. In fact, it's, it's the case today that even if a young man or woman goes into the army, uh, uh, in Israel, they're, if they're betrothed, if they're married, they took so serious this issue of, of marriage and, uh, uh, and divorce on one hand and yet so lightly on the other that everyone goes out and fills out a little slip in case they get lost in battle or they die and no one can find them. Once you are betrothed, there was no separation. The only way you could be separated at that, what we would call an engagement, was there had to be a full divorce that had to go through. And so the betrothal process was very binding. And, 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 and they evolved their certain concepts that the men were extremely jealous. And so adultery would not only mean someone caught in the act, let's say, but they changed what the act was. And if a man was betrothed to a woman, that man would not permit that woman to ever be in any situation where she was behind a door with another man. Even if nothing happened, it would be considered the very act of adultery. We always wonder, where is the man in this situation? Where is the man in this circumstance? Perhaps it was not the depth of the act or the issue of the act. Maybe she was just caught in a situation where somebody entered into her house or her room. And there she is and it's found out and they bring her before Christ. And so now it is the law that stands in place. There was a provision in the law. Those that were caught in adultery were to be stoned. That's how serious it was taken. But there was a provision. If a husband thought that his wife had committed adultery on him and he could not prove it, he would then bring his wife to the priest. And the priest would take and they would, the, of the floor of the, the dust of the tabernacle floor, and they would mix it with water, and the woman would drink the water. And if her belly swelled up, this is in your Bible, if her belly swelled up and she died, it was the judgment of God and her guilt had been identified. But if she was claiming innocence and she drank the water and nothing happened, then she went free and, and, and uh, uh, there was no adultery and it was a restoration of marriage. Those laws were all set in place by God, not to have some kind of horrible pain inflicted, but they were all set in place by God to the intent that they would save the marriage. That was the purpose. That was the point. And as time went on, we know from the oral traditions that when they brought that woman under accusation to the tabernacle, they would take a piece of parchment 
And with the dust of the tabernacle floor, the earth, they would write the name of God on that piece of parchment. And then they would take that piece of paper and they would stick it in the water. And the name of God, the earth, literally was absolved in the water. And when the woman drank the water, she was literally drinking the name of God. And if she was innocent, the marriage would be restored. Faith would be in this place. And it would reunite the institution that God had established. But if she was claiming to be innocent, and yet she partook of the name of God, then judgment would come upon her. It was the name of God that would either establish your guilt or establish your innocence. When Christ gets down on the earth, and he begins to write upon the earth. He is taking the floor of the tabernacle. The earth is his tabernacle. He is the Almighty. And he begins to write. What was he writing? I don't know, but I suppose he was writing the very name of God. He was writing the name of the everlasting one. And those who had brought in accusation there was a name that was going to be established and that name was going to establish guilt upon those that were guilty and it was going to establish innocence upon those that had no iniquity. Christ does something powerful. He says, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. The first thing that he does is he dispenses with the accusers. He dispenses with the accusers. Can I tell you, Hebrews tells us that Satan stands as the accuser of the brethren. What right does Satan have to accuse you and I of slipping up this week when he got kicked out of heaven? What right does Satan have of coming and telling you that you ought not worship today? I know where you've been, that you ought not love the Lord today. I know what you've done. What right does Satan have to stand around throwing stones at the people of God and God dis? Dispenses with the accusers. Would grace stand helpless? No. Grace would not stand helpless because the only one that can ultimately stand in judgment over everything is not the creation, but it is the creator. <laughs> and God said in the book of Isaiah, even though Christ has not yet been to the cross, even though at this point in the story he has not yet shed his blood, Blood. Isaiah writes it as a God that is not bound by time. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. When Isaiah picks up the pen and writes about the Messiah that would come 500 years ahead, he writes as if it's already done. Why? Because he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I don't know about you, but don't let your accusers stand up today and keep you from what God has for you. Oh, clap your hands unto the Lord this morning.
And they stand there. And the Bible says, after this point, they were convicted. When they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, he was not alone on his own, but he was alone in this dialogue between the scribes and the Pharisees and himself. There was still a multitude around. They were left in the midst, but Christ is left alone to deal with this person as he's dispensed with all of the accusers. They, they walk away. They came that day thinking that they would disenfranchise the multitude and they would send them home not knowing that Christ would send them back on their own and they were the ones to leave and so here he is standing in the midst and when he lifted up himself and saw none but her he said woman where are thine accusers hath no man condemned thee see here was here's what happened in the old testament they had severe penalties severe penalties thank god we we are not living under the law there was severe penalties but for somebody to be carried out, the person that would do the stoning had to be the witness. You could not come and say, hey, they did this, and then get out of the messiness of executing the judgment of God. If you were going to be a witness against somebody, then you had to carry it out all the way. You as the witness had to be the one to cast the stone. You could not leave it to somebody else to do. But you had to be the one. Can I tell you, that ought to teach us something in the church before we attempt to try to pick on one another or point somebody else out. You be careful because the law says that if you think that, then you've got to be the executor of God's judgment all the way. And when Christ says, he that is without sin... You know what he was doing? He was letting them know there may be a witness in your past that comes back up someday. And don't you worry about somebody else. Amen. When Christ is dealing with this situation. And so they were the witness, but they were not willing to carry it out. Oh, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for a God that takes care of my accusers. I'm thankful for a God that takes care of accusers. You know what happens in the church? We stop accusing one another. That's for the world to do. That happens outside. But when you come into the house of God, can I tell you, I'm not going to accuse you because I know what he saved me from. Come on, somebody. I'm not going to cast a stone at you when you're coming to Christ because I know I shouldn't be here. I know that I should have had some stones cast, but grace saved me. I'm not going to throw them at anybody else. And then Christ goes on and he looks at her and she says there's no accusers. And now he gives to her what I would say is the greatest calling in your life. He says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He dispenses with her accusers. He dispenses with the law that stands against her, not destroying the law, but he's getting ready to fulfill the law. The penalty has already been paid. The price is already done. And so once he handles all of that, he now empowers her to a new life. Go and sin no more. 
the greatest calling that you and I will ever receive. It's a life without transgression. It's a life without failure. It's a life without iniquities. It's a life without sin. It's a life without death that he's inviting us to go and sin no more. He is actually inviting her to a life without sin. A life without transgression against God. A life without guilt. A life without the filthiness of the world. It's a calling unto a life of living joyously. A life of peace. A life of purity. A life where your mind is not wrapped and warped by witnesses and accusations. But it's a life free to live. Amen. Not under the bondage of sin. It's a life that God has given to us that we can rise above the lust of the flesh. Above the prides of life. Beyond the vanities that the world have to offer. This is the calling that Christ gives us go and sin no more a life under purity one in which when you lay your head on the pillow at night you can smile and rest because Christ did it he gave me a new start he gave me another chance and now I'm living not in my abilities but I'm living in the grace of God it is a life empowered unto a walk in holiness He said, be ye holy, for I am holy. What is it about God when we see him? The Bible says the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. When they look at him, his purity is so great. His goodness is so refined. Amen. His awesomeness is without definition. And they simply are left to cry, holy, holy, holy. There's nothing so flawless. There's nothing so wonderful. There's nothing so splendid. Amen. Holy, holy, holy. And that is the life that Christ calls her to. Go and sin no more. Walk in a life of splendor. Walk in a life of purity. Walk in a life where you're not hanging your head every morning and hanging your head every night. Walk in a life where you're not looking behind your back trying to see if your accusers are still around. Walk in a life where you're not worried about the skeletons in the closet because they've been taken care of. Walk in a life of holiness. Can I tell you, this is the point of the purpose of the cross. And we've got to be careful that we don't waste the work of the cross with an unholy life. Because God has empowered us for more. Hear me today. He did not tell her, go. You can be free so you can go and sin more. So you can go and transgress more. So you can go and get caught in adultery again. So you can go have another chance and try to get away with it. No, he was saying go and sin no more. He was lifting her life above the sin that she had been found. Oh, can I tell you, Jesus did not say, go, sin no more, and I will not condemn you. 
The, no condemnation was not predicated upon her not future sin. It was not a life to live under a microscope of judgment. Amen. Hoping not to make a mistake and then salvation coming. No. Christ says, neither do I condemn you. He took care of the guilt. He took care of the judgment. And then he says, go and sin no more. Can I tell you, I'm not living a life of holiness because I have to. I'm not trying to walk in purity because I have to. The condemnation is gone. The guilt is gone. I am free to live a life of purity. I am free to live a life over sin. It's not because I have to. I get to. <laughs> Like the song says, I am free to run. I am free to dance. I am free to live for you. No more shackles. No more condemnation. No more guilt in my life. I've got a life of liberty. That's the life of grace. When I get up in the morning, I'm not saying I hope I can make it. I'm saying this is the day that the Lord hath made. This is a good day. God has empowered me. To live a life of holiness. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Christ died on the cross. Not so that we would walk unholy, but so that we would walk holy. He broke the bondage of sin. Not just to dispense with our accusers, but he sought to change our situation. You see, the accusers came to trip Christ up. And they were using this woman. She was, she was immaterial. They had no care for her, no concern. She was being used by them. But Christ's concern was not the accusers. Christ's concern was the woman. And he looks at her and says, go and sin no more. Look at what he says in John chapter 8 and verse number 12. Immediately following this narrative, there's a new paragraph. There's a new train of thought in the gospel of John, and he continues on. And right after that, Jesus speaks again and says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This is what he was telling the woman. Go and sin no more. When you walk in me, you don't walk in darkness. When you walk in me, you don't walk in iniquity. Can I tell you, when Christ changes you, when grace comes into your life, there is a natural desire to respond to God with wanting to change. It's quiet on Sunday morning. I don't want to do the things I used to do anymore. Come on, think back. You drive by the clubs, 4 a.m. on Sunday morning, <clears throat> people stumbling out, acting like they're happy, drowning their sorrows. Why? Because they're enjoying life so much that they got to stay up all night and drown their sorrows. No, I go to bed knowing that God's got everything in control. I don't have to worry about all that. I, I'm the one that's free. Look and say, look at you, you're bound. You have to go to church every Sunday and you have to do this and your pastor makes you do this. I don't think I'm making anybody do anything. I get to do this. I choose to be 
a Christian. I'm choosing to live this life. I'm choosing to distance myself from immorality and shame and guilt. I'm choosing to leave those things behind. I'm choosing to walk and follow after Christ. And whoa, what a powerful thing it is when the light of life comes inside of my life. You know why? Because I know something about God's grace. Because I remember a night when I couldn't break free. I remember a night when I was bound by my thoughts and my guilt and my sins. And I was tormented by the condemnation that laid on my heart. Oh, but thank God for the grace that's found at an altar. Christ says, come on. Christ says, go and sin no more. Well, we're not here to say we're better than anybody else. Are you kidding me? No, that's why we're standing here in an accusation-free zone. We're not casting stones. We're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's more powerful. Christ can take care of the law. He fulfilled the law. He did not dispense with the law. He dispensed with the accusers. He did not dispense with the law. No, he becomes our high priest. He becomes our sacrificial lamb. He is our atonement. The price has been paid. So I can stand. I can stand free today. Free of condemnation. I can stand free of condemnation and say, I don't care what the enemy says I used to do. I don't care what my mind replays what I used to do. I have been freed from that. I have been set free by the blood of the Lamb. I know something about God's grace. It should have been me, (laughs) but it wasn't. And now I am a witness testifying to the grace and the glory of God. But as many as receive them, John says in his first chapter, verse 12, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Christ is giving us power. He's empowering us. Empowering us what? He's empowering us to walk in a life of righteousness. In a life of holiness. Can I preach to somebody for just a moment this morning? And I'm, I'm coming to a close. Maybe we could just sing that song again. I know something about God's grace. I think that would be a good way to send off here. But maybe you're still carrying things in your heart. Maybe you are secretly keeping things in your soul. Maybe you are handling things in your spirit. Temptation has made its way back into your pathway again. And you, you come to church... And, and I think probably many of us at some point in our life, if we cannot remember, have walked through this where you come to church and you feel the presence of the Lord and you just hope, you know, oh, I just hope they sing this song on Sunday or I hope, I hope preacher, pastor preaches really good on Sunday. And, and it's that refreshing of the spirit that comes and refreshes you. But you get in your car and you go back home And you wonder and you think, how am I ever going to break free of this? And it lingers there and it hangs there and it hovers over there in that condemnation. Can I tell you, that is not God's will. God's will is for he that the Son hath set free to be free indeed. No matter what what device, no matter what addictions, afflictions, or things come into our heart, there is freedom 
in the Holy Ghost. Today, you don't need, you don't need me to say something. It's not me as a personality. If there's any anointing, if there's any power, it's in the Word of God that I speak to your life. It's not the personality of Andrew Romine, but it's the Word of God that speaks life. And the same God that stooped in the ground, the same God that etched the tables of stone on Mount Sinai, is the same God that stoops in the ground before all of them. <laughs> they weren't going to trick him up with the law when he wrote it. He's the same God that says, I'll send my spirit into your heart. And when my spirit comes, Ezekiel prophesied, you'll walk in his ways. He'll lead you and he'll guide you to walk in his ways. He said, I will cause you to walk in my ways. So if the spirit of God is in me and alive in me and, and, and actively working in my life, then it should cause me to walk in God's way. Not that I am a robot with my mind turned off, but it empowers me to walk in His way. And I don't have to sin unless I deliberately choose sin. Because I'm not bound by that. I can choose to sin, yes, but I can also choose to not sin again. Can I tell you, the farther you get from sin, the better life is. Well, I'm preaching to somebody this morning. Come on, you remember what it was like to lay your head on a pillow at night and realize, wow, it's a good day. If God comes tonight, I'm ready. Come on. You know, the Lord is coming back. And it could be any day. I don't know when, but it could be any day. There was many, many days, thank God, I had enough fear of God, knowledge of God, that I thought, Lord, I, I'm not ready if you come right now. Can I just be real? I know we've grown old. We talk about it when we were children. When I was a child, man, I, I, I wanted to make sure I was ready because I knew, you know, God, I'm, I'm not ready. Don't come, don't come yet. I remember being a child and my pastor had a stand all across the church and we were praying and he said, we're praying for the coming of the Lord. When Christ comes, he's coming for a bride that's ready for him and looking for him. And he said, let's stand and pray. And oh, I will never forget the terror that struck my little soul as a child. Because when the church prayed, prayers were answered. And here they were praying, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I thought, I may not make this home. And if they're all raptured, I'm going to be stuck here by myself. This is not good. Now, we laugh about that now. I laugh about that now. But you take me back to that moment. I was not laughing. No, God. I'm not ready. Let me be ready. I remember running the altar as a teenager sometimes. And you know how you are. Couldn't break through to the Holy Ghost and be like, God, you got to save me. God, you got to save me. And I was trying to work it out all on my own without surrendering it to the Lord. But when I finally learned to just trust God and let him take care of everything and just live life as he's empowered me to live life. Wow, what a freedom it was to say, wow, I'm ready. Now, I'm not, now I'm not asking God to take my life today, but I'm ready. 
That's my testimony. That's my witness. He saved me. I hope that's your witness. I hope that's the boldness and the faith which you can live with. The Old Testament statement, the Shema, the Israelites would quote Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 4. We know it as hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was the Shema. It's everything. That's the keystone, the foundation of everything in the Torah. But when it's translated into our English and we read it in our text, we miss how it was written. When it was written, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I've got the Hebrew written out here. I could, could have put it up there. But when it's written in the Hebrew text itself, the last letter of the word Shema, or here, the first word, here, the last letter looks similar to what we would see as a Y. And the last letter of the word one, which is the first, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first word and the last word of that phrase, the last letter of both of those words are slightly larger. They're larger. And when you put them together, they make the two Hebrew letters that make a word. These two letters spell one of two words. It could mean until, until, or it could mean witness. The rabbis claim that these letters make the statement that the bringing out of bondage from Egypt, the bringing out of bondage and the taking through into the promised land is the witness of the power that only exists in the one true hand of God. That there's no other God that can bring you out except the God of Israel. So when they write, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You're reading that statement, identify, but you're also reading a witness that the only God that can bring you out is the only God that ever exists. Can I tell you, Satan won't bring you out. The gods of this world won't deliver you, won't bring you out. They won't set you free, but there's a testimony today that the one man named Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, has the power to bring you out. He can bring you out of the adultery. He can bring you out of the despair. He can bring you out of the sickness. He can bring you out of the diseases. I know something about God's grace. Why? Because I was standing there before the accusers. Grace looked helpless. But all of a sudden, the finger of God began to write a new story in my life. And he's the author and he's the finisher of my faith. Would you stand together with me this morning? Oh, yes. Sing it. I know something about God's grace. Somebody help me, choir. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. I know something about God's grace. Come on, can you just forget about everybody else? Come on, this is between you and God today, Lord. I know 
Come on, God is calling us to a life, a life of holiness, a life of purity, a life not of transgression. Oh, singing, yes, Lord, I know. Oh, something about God's grace. Hallelujah, Lord. Yes, Lord. And I know something about God's grace. Sing it, yes, Lord. Hallelujah. I know something about